This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Wednesday, October the 4th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the Manitoba election results are in. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig will talk about the news on that front. San Camozzi gives you tips on how to mitigate its effects. And the Canadian Transportation Sea, Transportation Sea, <laughs> combining words, the Canadian Transportation Agency has ruled that Air Canada, Air Canada needs to better accommodate passengers with disabilities. Elizabeth Moeller will reflect on the story. But the show begins with the top story of the day, and it's the same top story as yesterday. There is a new Speaker of the House in Parliament. Liberal MP Greg Fergus was selected by parliamentarians yesterday. Fergus reflected on the importance of his role. There can be no dialogue unless there's a mutual understanding of respect. If there can be no ability to pursue the arguments, to make your points be heard, unless we all agree to extend to each other that sense of respect and decorum. So I'm going to be working hard on this. Following tradition, the new speaker was, quotes, I'm throwing the air quotes up here, dragged to the chair in the House of Commons by the Prime Minister and the opposition leader, because I suppose it's important that everybody gets to have a little bit of fun, like finance ministers wearing new shoes on the day of the budget. On the American side of the border, their lawmakers tossed out their House Speaker yesterday. Sagar Bagani files this report. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. In an extraordinary showdown, the House voted to remove Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. I wouldn't change a thing. It's the end of a chaotic eight-month run with the gavel, with many of the same hard-right conservatives who tried to stop him from becoming Speaker, essentially forcing him out, led by Matt Gates. The reason Kevin McCarthy went down today is because nobody trusts Kevin McCarthy. But during an extraordinary debate unseen in modern times, backers like Tom McClintock argued removing McCarthy McCarthy would turn the House to the left. And will effectively end Republican House majority that the voters elected in 2022. McCarthy says he will not run again for Speaker, and with no obvious successor, the House will gather again next week and try to elect a new one. Sagar Magani, Washington. You're going to have to add a new rule to the Now with Dave Brown coffee drinking game that every time I say the expression, Americans make democracy harder than it needs to be. You've got to take a shot of espresso. Uh, Speaking of politics, Michelle McQuig stops by in about 10 minutes to talk about the results of the Manitoba election. The short version is the NDP won a majority, but the conversation will go much deeper than that. Turning to public transit, urban transit, And city design, a couple stories from across the country and some research that all relate to that topic. There was a significant transit outage in southern Ontario yesterday. John Kennedy has the details. 
Commuters across the greater Toronto area saw their afternoon rush hour travel thrown into chaos on Tuesday after a network-wide system failure at CN Rail halted all GO trains as well as all rail links to Toronto's main airport. Three and a half hours after the problems began, GO Transit reported that limited services would be resuming from downtown Toronto's Union Station. CN Rail released an afternoon statement saying it was experiencing an internet connectivity and electronic data interchange issue. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So that's the Southern Ontario and Toronto perspective. There's a city planning debate brewing in Montreal's Park X neighbourhood. The city wants to eliminate 250 street parking spaces to create separated bike lanes. Vélo Quebec President Jean-François Roux supports the plan. The biggest barrier is lack of infrastructure. So by implementing, you know, secure and uh, effective uh, infrastructure, it's the key to make cycling available for everyone in the neighborhood. Resident Sia Spanakaitis thinks removing 250 parking spots will make the neighborhood less pleasant. No one is against secure bike paths. On the contrary, we, we want secure bike paths as well. The, the, the point of contention is why does this need to be done with the removal of 250 parking spots, which are going to impact the quality of life um, in, in, in the neighborhood? 2018 data shows that half the households in the Park X neighborhood do not have a car. This topic will lead to the daily polls in just a moment. But one more story for you from a very similar file here. Got city planning on the brain today. New research considers the positive impact of more walkable neighborhoods. Lionel Moise offers some insight. Those trendy new neighborhoods with shops and restaurants and parks and everything else under the sun we love to walk to conveniently could also be good for your health. A new study from Columbia University finds that living in walkable neighborhoods may lead to lower rates of some obesity-related cancers in women. Obesity is linked to a greater risk of developing 13 types of cancer in women, including breast, colorectal, and endometrial cancers. Lionel Moyes, ABC News, New York. I would quibble with Lionel Moise's premise there a little bit. New trendy neighborhoods where you can walk to everything. You mean like how neighborhoods used to be where you could walk to everything? Uh, sometimes going back in time is the uh, new trend. Let's get into the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Tuesday, you were asked, what insect in your home makes you the most icky? This is as Paris, France is dealing with a bed bug infestation. Zero percent of you agreed with me and said ants, so you're all clean and never drop any of your food on the floor, that's good. 64% of you said bed bugs, 9% of you said cockroaches, and 27% of you said centipedes. Had a couple responses here on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Leanne writes in, centipedes and cockroaches are tied. I woke up one night with a centipede in my bed. A scene ensued. Leona comments, centipedes, oh geez, even thinking about them makes my skin crawl. Pearly says, the very worst would be a bed bug. I haven't seen one, so I'll go with the wiggly centipede. And Julie tweets in, I like this positive perspective from Julie. No insect makes me feel icky. I marvel at the miracle of movement in such small, complex beings. Other responses included maggots, silverfish, and millipedes.
So lots of great responses on yesterday's poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Today's topic is all about bike lanes. You just heard me tell you that story about the city of Montreal planning to expand bike lanes in the Park X neighborhood. Let's go with the reality that bike lanes are here to stay and they're going to continue to expand. What can cities do to make you feel safer about more bike infrastructure? I've got a couple options here for you, but of course, you're always encouraged to go off the board. Large barriers, elevated crosswalks, mandatory noise levels. Think about uh, a bike having to make a certain sound, a level of sound, so maybe you can hear it coming, or of course, I've given other as an option here as well. So feel free to write in at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, and go off the board and talk about bike lanes. Amanda Shikarchi, I bring this story forward because bike lanes are, in theory, a very good thing if you're thinking about environmentalism and transportation and local neighborhoods. But on the accessibility side of the equation, they can be a real nuisance, and nuisance is an understatement for people with disabilities. Yes, totally. Especially when you're walking around and like, you know, you don't consciously consciously realize that there's like a bike lane near you. So you feel all like the bike poles and stuff and you're like, okay, what's going on? Um, but I do agree. Um, I love all the solutions you propose, but if I were to choose one, I think either the large barriers or making sure that bikes have a sound so that like if I'm navigating with my cane, I can feel the barriers and be like, okay, this is a bike lane and move out of the way or hear that a bike is coming and again, instinctively move out of the way so that I don't walk into someone by accident. Yeah, large barriers is something that our colleague Bruce McLaren was talking about this morning. Bruce is an avid cyclist. And the one thing that Bruce pointed out, though, large barriers, great, great idea. But you really have to make sure they're being policed and enforced properly so they're not being blocked by cars. But part of that enforcement and policing also puts some onus on bikers and cyclists to be following the rules of the road as well. I do want to point out, again, I, I, I want to be very clear about my own internal conflict on this because there are a lot of places and a lot of reasons where biking can be super useful, but I encountered a situation this morning walking up Don Mills Road where I almost got clipped by a biker who was riding on the sidewalk, and that's one of my bugaboos. I acknowledge that it's probably not fair or reasonable to ask that biker to ride along Don Mills, along one of the busiest streets in all of Toronto, but then for me to almost get clipped by a bike that's making no noise as I'm walking down the street, like, that's a problem too. Like, my safety has to be considered as well but Alex, I know that I'm a selfish person. Uh, well, Dave, I yeah, there's there's no easy kind of one solution to really choose here. Like, yeah, I agree. The large barriers in in theory are fantastic, but you know, what if you're getting dropped off on, at an intersection or or on the side of uh, one of the roads that has those barriers? Your car is then in the in the lane still, and you have to then cross through those uh, barriers and where those cyclists are. Having been in Toronto last night, I, the number of cyclists I saw and the number of ones just like whipping as fast as they could, like 30, 40 kilometers easily down some of these busy streets, it was actually unnerving because you're... Yeah. you're even in a vehicle, you're, you're concerned like they're going to cut you off or if a car makes a turn, you know, and, and these cyclists aren't necessarily always obeying the rules of the road. They're not wearing helmets. It, it's going to be a problem for, for everyone. So I like the idea of elevated crosswalks. I don't quite know how they would work within 
you know, a city like Toronto or even Montreal, where <laughs> a that, lot of, that infrastructure a lot of in, is so built in. A lot of infrastructure building to do elevated sidewalks. Yes. Like, there's no doubt about that one. Yeah, Alex, you were uh, downtown last night at, like, uh, Bloor and Spadina, and if you want to mm -hmm. talk about claustrophobia and not a lot of room for cars or bikes or pedestrians, that's the definition of it. Yeah, and well, and you saw tons of those rental bikes, right? And it's like, oh, that's that's great. But one thing too that Andrika Delanero, the senior show producer, had talked about and, and uh, discussed with me on it is the fact that they don't come with helmets, and very rarely do you see these cyclists with helmets or really, really taking into account the rules and of uh, road safety just in general. So there, there's greater concerns with all those types of things. But I think, yeah, in the mandatory noise level, I I get why that would be appealing, but the city's already noisy enough. Do you really want to add to yeah. the noise and the hustle you would, and the bustle? I, you would have to put that noise level quite high, quite yes. high. Oh, absolutely. Because the thing is, too, you you want to be able to hear it if you're in a vehicle or or whatnot. So it's like you're you're basically creating more motorcycles going up and down the street, which I don't think anyone would yeah, appreciate. Yeah, okay, it, it's a complicated situation. Yeah. I don't think we've reached consensus here this morning. Maybe you can help us out in listener land and the viewer vortex at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, the Manitoba election results are in. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will reflect on the news. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Manitoba election is in the books. The short version, the very short version. The new Democrats have won a majority government. There's obviously way more to explore than just that. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. <laughs> Michelle, votes are still being counted. 95.5% mm -hmm. of votes have been counted as of 9 a.m. Eastern time. It is an NDP majority government. That is known. But what's the scale of the win? Well, uh, from what I can tell, well, first of all, I would like to note that your erstwhile news panel got everything wrong on Friday. Yeah, right. Uh, not a one of us <laughs> successfully called this one, so... Uh, so much for your news panel's accuracy. Um, it's not going to be a huge majority. The, the, the threshold for getting one was 29 seats. We know they're going to have that. The projections that I've been seeing this morning are looking more like sort of 31, 32 kind of seats that they might wind up with. So that would be less than the conservative majority that just toppled after, after this election, but it is a majority nonetheless. And it is a significant swing away from the status quo in Manitoba and is ushering in a whole new era here. Yeah, it's been almost a decade with the progressive conservative government uh, in power. Yeah, Michelle, you mentioned 29 seats. Those have been confirmed one by the NDP. They're leading in five, and the PCs are leading in two more. So there's the possibility of going up to 34 seats, but votes are still being counted. But yes, at this moment, it is a, it is a majority. It's been declared a majority government win for the NDP. I dove a little deeper into the popular vote. Not that popular vote matters in Canada. Don't get me started. But it, what, it is notable, the popular vote... <laughs> 
output was actually much closer than what the seat allotment is going to be, about 45% for the NDP and 41% for the PCs. So as, oh, we, were okay. so as okay. we were talking on the news panel on Friday, part of the conversation was that opinion polls showed it being quite close, and the popular vote does reflect that it is quite close as well. That's interesting, yeah. And the seat allocation thing is significant because the, the path to victory for the NDP was through urban and suburban ridings, as as is so often the case in Canadian politics. It's true in Manitoba, too. And in order for the NDP to secure this win, they needed to topple a number of people in Winnipeg ridings and ridings in and around that city, and they did so. They knocked off a number of Conservative cabinet ministers. Um, the inroads they made there are, are widely what's being credited with their win. They also did make some gains up north. It's worth noting that as well. So it wasn't just limited to those areas. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of seat concentration, that's where the bulk of the seats are distributed. And any party knows. And then we see this time and again in every province and definitely every federal election. If you can't turn those urban ridings, it's not going to happen. Yeah, win cities, win elections. Okay, Michelle, let's get to some sound here. NDP leader and soon-to-be Premier Wab Canoe was pretty fired up addressing his supporters. No kidding. <laughs> Manitoba! Manitoba did something more progressive than any of those big cities ever did. We elected a strong team of New Democrats to fix health care and make your life more affordable. Michelle, there's a certain Captain Obviousness to this question, but what's the significance of Wab Canoe securing this election win? Well, there is the, 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 the big thing, really, is that he is the first First Nations premier to be elected into office by a Canadian province. So that that's really pretty big, and 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 you saw that in the the tone of the comments last night. Uh, Wab Canoe himself made mention of it at some point, having to acknowledge it. Uh, but even his opponents, who were pretty gracious in defeat, were quick to point this out and talk about how this was a bit of a generational moment for a whole number of people, especially when you consider the fact that Wab Canoe's own parents, under Canadian law, were not allowed to cast a vote in their lifetime. Wow. Uh, so there's some that I found that very striking, and it made the the moment when Wab Canoe brought his mother up on stage to sing Happy Birthday, um, all the more moving in light of that last night. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's switch over to the Progressive Conservatives. Their leader and former Premier Heather Stephenson is stepping down after the loss. Stephenson stressed mm -hmm. the the vital role of being in opposition. As we head to the other side of the house. I can tell Manitobans that the team of PC MLAs that you elected tonight will keep fighting for you and we will hold the new government's feet to the fire. Michelle, I found this one to be a little bit surprising. Even though Stephenson's been in politics for 23 years, that's a long career, I am surprised that, that in, in what was maybe statistically a little bit of a closer race than what the outcome is going to suggest, I'm I'm surprised that Stephenson's stepping down. I really am. What's your reaction? Well, yeah, I, I, Stephenson has raised a number of eyebrows with this campaign specifically. Um, the, the the we discussed this on the panel on Friday. The party leaned really hard into the issue of searching the Prairie Green. A lot of heat for that in recent weeks, to the point where she pulled back significantly through the end of the campaign. She did not hold any press conferences in Winnipeg for about 10 days, which is really surprising yeah, on the campaign yeah. trail. Um, so she went really, really radio silent. She did not allow the media to accompany her to cast a ballot, which is, again, a very traditional thing to do on a campaign. 
Um, so I, I am not entirely sure what is going on there, but there, I, I, I was also struck not only by her resignation as party leader, because I didn't see that coming either, but by the fact that at this moment, anyway, unless something's coming when I haven't been looking, we're not even sure if she got her own seat back. That's that's still uh, that's still being counted right now. Still being counted yeah, right now. So, it's one of the it's one of the writings that's up for up for debate still. Yeah. So in light of those, those are not uh, great indicators of great personal popularity. So in light of those factors, maybe the step of the resignation is a bit less surprising. But I can't say I saw it coming myself. Yes. Yeah, speaking of a party leader uh, losing their seat, a liberal leader, uh, yes. Douglas Lamont, Douglas lost Lamont. his writing yes. and promptly resigned. Hold, hold on, Michelle. I got a clipper. I got a clip here. Hold on. Yeah, I am truly sad today to be losing, but the people have spoken. I'll congratulate Robert Lozell. I congratulate Wab Canoe. And that's it. Thank you. Merci. Terse prompt uh, resignation there by uh, by Douglas Lamont, but Michelle, it feels not not to make everything about Ontario, but it feels like again the brand of what is the Liberal Party provincially is uh, kind of out in the wilderness right now. Uh, looking at Ontario, Manitoba, there's there's a, a there's a couple places that are just kind of uh, wandering around here where there's there's not a lot of light in the forest. I would hesitate to draw the equivalent between the Ontario Liberal Party and the Manitoba Liberal Party in this context. The Manit when the Liberals fell from grace, it was a stunning defeat. We were talking about a multi-generational government that had been there reduced to losing official party status. In this case, uh, there were three Liberal MLAs in Manitoba, and now there is one. So yes, not a great day for the Liberals, not a good day for Douglas Lamont, unfortunately, but uh, we're not talking about the same kind of scale of reduction in, in party status mm -hmm. and, and scope as we saw in, in Ontario. But that is an interesting point, and uh, trying to think of where the Liberal brand might be a little stronger. Yeah, so New, yeah, New, and New, Nova, Nova, Nova Scotia was another one. Where yeah, the, Newfoundland yeah. and Labrador at this point is the only is the only province that has uh, an official Liberal branded premier. That's right. Well, we might see an election in New Brunswick soon. So uh, yes. That party there. <laughs> you know, Michelle, that is actually my, my last and other observation. As I zoom out, Canadian politics looks much different than it did about two years ago. New premiers in British Columbia, Alberta, Manitoba, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, Yukon, and in a few weeks, the Northwest Territories. You also mentioned the possibility of an election being called in New Brunswick. I, th I, I would say that the pandemic did change a little bit the way politicians looked at their jobs, that it wasn't just glad-handing and rubber chicken dinners anymore. You actually had to make some really difficult, hard decisions, and you took a lot of flack and heat for it. So I can see why a lot of top leaders would say, Nah, man, this isn't for me anymore. This isn't what I signed up for. What's your theory or thought on this kind of turnover that's happening at the provincial level? Yeah, for me, it kind of tracks with my own experience of pandemic life. If you remember the, the votes that were held in, in the immediate days of the pandemic, everyone stayed put. So there wasn't a lot of change when it was actually happening. But now that we're sort of past it a bit, I'm I'm getting the sense that a lot of people have more appetite for change, and that does play out politically. And like you said, Dave, I think you're right to say that the the governments who are in charge of executing pandemic measures and putting those in place are now feeling some probably possibly inevitable pushback, and some of it is just the cyclical nature of, of politics. Of yeah, course, but yeah, yeah, you, you're right. Of course, since the governments are going to carry some water on the, on those kinds of files. And Manitoba, one could argue, is one of them because that was an area where the Tories specifically really started losing popularity very noticeably during the pandemic, and now they're out of office. 
Well, Michelle, on to the Northwest Territories in November and maybe New Brunswick before uh, the year is out in terms maybe of provincial so. elections. So political yep. analysts, uh, don't uh, get your powder <laughs> too wet here. Michelle, thank you for this. Have a great day. You too. Take care, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, Weekend News Editor at the Canadian Press and part of the Friday News Panel. Coming your way in about 48 hours. So stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Literally sit right there and wait for the panel to start in 48 hours on the Friday show. <laughs> Coming up after the break, climate emergencies are on the rise. Therefore, climate anxiety is on the rise. And Kamozi gives you some tips on how to mitigate its effects. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Climate emergencies are becoming more common. This summer has seen wildfires, tropical storms, and heat waves. The events cause stress for people involved directly. That's obvious. They also cause stress for people observing them. This is known as climate anxiety. Anne Kamosi has some thoughts on climate anxiety. Hey, good morning, Anne. Good morning, Dave. So, and How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. I think I think this is a really interesting and important topic. I gave a really brief definition of climate anxiety in the introduction, but how would you say it manifests in daily life? Well, I think um, some people call it eco-anxiety. Um, people are calling it climate dread. I think um, the biggest concern is p some people are feeling completely overwhelmed by um, all the natural disasters that we've been experiencing. It's been a summer of fires. We had hurricanes in Nova Scotia. Um, and, and if you weren't actually in a wide-scale disaster, you were watching it. So it's, it's really described as excessive worry, loss of sleep, depression, and actual anxiety disorder. Um, which be can manifest in like watching the news too much or not watching it at all. Mm. And the biggest concern that people have is that it's going to stop people from acting. It's, it's interesting. Time magazine did a, a survey in June, and I'm just going to read you here. They, they said that over a third of Americans were dreaming about climates and people were reporting like sadness, fear, extreme anxiety, like, apocalyptic dreams and i think um like i get anxious about since we've been in the in the in fiona like what can i do because i can't reduce plastic because my wheelchair a lot of my medical devices you know use plastic catheters all that kind of stuff mm. and i think those of us with disabilities it's even harder not to have that anxiety because we are two to four times more likely to be to die even in a natural disaster so it's a it's it's it can infect your whole life and it affects everybody differently. You know, and you touched on something really interesting there, which is almost the defeatist attitude that it can create. That you're so worried about both the possibility of a short-term climate disaster and the long-term prospects that you might just say, "Okay, forget recycling, forget compost, forget compostable coffee pods, forget recycle, reuse, durability. Forget this. I'm too small. I can't solve this. I'm out." Yeah, I think that's a real concern of of um, 
of climate um, activists. And, and um, you know, of course, if climate anxiety is, is interfering with your important activities like eating and sleeping and daily living, you, you need to get professional help. Yes, of course. Absolutely. So, so, okay, beyond, of course, the professional side of it, like that's obviously a very important cog if you're going through a, a true anxiety disorder. What are some of the things someone can do to mitigate or address their own climate anxiety? Well, there are things you can do, and this isn't just me saying this. This is what psychologists are saying, and they're saying limit the news that you read, especially before you go to sleep. Mm. Um, read and learn what you can do to help. Um, become engaged in community. Join climate groups. Attend climate events. Connect with others who are concerned. Mindfulness and stress management. I do sitting Gong in my wheelchair and uh, breathing exercises, and, and, and that kind of helps with other medical things too. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later, but contemplating and connecting with nature, um, more, most importantly, supporting climate action and justice. And that means like voting for candidates at all levels of government who are advocating, volunteer. I can't clean a stream in my power wheelchair, but I can write a fundraising grant for that. Mm. And so climate justice is really important concept for people to get their heads around because climate change affects poor and disadvantaged communities more than others. And we're, we with disabilities are in that category. You know, I think I talked about it last time I was here about the heat dome in, in BC mm -hmm. affecting people with disabilities more. And it does affect us more. So I think climate justice is a really important part of it. Um, there was an interesting article in the Walrus, a Canadian magazine, a couple of weeks ago, and they were uh, quoting Joel Jurgis, who is one of the leading climate scientists um, in, in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And she says, like, it's irreversible if we don't act, uh, but it puts an onus on writers, creators, that's, you know, and broadcasters and curators, anybody who's in the public eye to um, tell people it's not too late to stabilize things. And she says we have to continue to translate the science into a language of urgency. Mm. And she says, how are you going to show up? to this moment. I, I really liked that concept. And like writer and environmentalist Bill McGibbon, I really read his stuff and like him. And he says, stop being an individual, join something. The key, I think, is to transform our anxiety into something working towards a better future. And personally, I think that is connected to a creative practice and limiting our carbon footprint. Okay, go a little bit deeper on that one because the carbon footprint and our own individual responsibility does matter. I know sometimes the onus might seem a little bit unfair as individuals to say we have to lower our own carbon footprint to uh, offset uh, what gargantuan oil companies are doing <laughs> uh, through, through the rest of the world. But what are some uh, tips or advice in regards to uh, lowering our carbon footprints in our daily habits? Well, what you see there up on the screen is part of a, parts of a, a carbon footprint test. There are many online. They're free. You can go on, and, and what you do is you actually calculate what your carbon footprint is. And, and that 
these kinds of questions ask, like, how do you heat your home? Um, how often do you travel on an airplane? How much meat do you eat? Are you recycling? Are you attempting to cut down on consumerism by used clothing? Some of these things are harder for us to do with disabilities. Um, you know, it's hard for me to get out shopping. It's much easier for me to order on Amazon. But I'm trying to look at that and say, that's coming on an airplane. So if shopping locally, you know, all of these things are really important. I, I think that's such a big topic. I'd like to come back sometime and just do a whole segment mm. on how we can, you know, limit our carbon footprint. I would love that because it's something that I uh, grapple with on the regular end. You, you see a lot of things that are built for convenience that oftentimes can be really useful for a person with a disability. I'm going to circle back to the notion of a coffee pod for myself, who's legally blind. I don't want to deal with a coffee machine that has 77 million buttons so I like just being able to put one thing in press one button and get a cup of coffee but I objectively know even the compostable ones are dreadful for the environment like dreadful in terms of a consumerism point of view I'm also someone who runs very hot so I use a lot of central air conditioning which means that's a huge level of energy consumption so I understand like that internal conflict about saying what can I do but what compromises am I willing to make as well another example you mentioned plastic there's a lot of uh, items you might buy at the grocery store, like the che- uh, pre-chopped fruits or vegetables uh, that come in a plastic container, and people will sometimes judge you for saying, oh, you're buying that thing, it comes in its own wrapper, why are you buying something in plastic? Well, maybe somebody has a dexterity disability, and they can't actually chop that food, but they want to eat fruits and vegetables, right? It's, it, there's, there's a big back and forth and, a, and quite a spectrum to discuss. Yeah, I think so. And and let's do it at a later date. Let's let, like let's just talk specifically about that. You know, I think with you know, climate anxiety, though, um, we have to look at broader things. And, and, you know, some of the things that I do, for example, I, I, I don't watch any news before I go to sleep. That's, that's a fast rule now, especially since Fiona, I definitely don't watch hurricane updates. I don't watch hurricanes in other places. I now know what it's like. I don't need to relive it. Um, and I try and forgive myself for what I can't do. You're talking about coffee pods. I, for me, it's like the amount of plastic waste with um, what I use, medical waste and rubber gloves and things like that. And I try and offset that and look at creative ways of, of um, you know, changing my lifestyle. But we'll, we'll talk about that more um, when I come back and we'll do a, like, a, let's talk, take 10 minutes and just do that. Okay, well, let's let's wrap up on this thought, though, because you mentioned that you're an artist and sometimes you're going to use your art as a creative extension to deal with your own climate anxiety. How does that manifest for you? Well, I think that's something I really wanted to share today. And, like, my art is behind me and I'm wearing a scarf that I painted. For me, color is an important part of getting rid of anxiety. But, you know, people say to me all the time, well, you're an artist. That's good for you because you can do that. Well, you know, um, everybody's an artist. And you can see here that, you know, I paint a lot of flowers. I I think that um, I like to paint colorful things and how people are connected. And I think that's an important part of understanding climate anxiety is connecting with other people and definitely connecting with nature. I, I, I just have a small little place and a small little patio, but I feed, I feed hummingbirds and I have a little 
a nest box for tree swallows and and you know if 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 you have low vision you can uh, have a garden a small even a pot of rosemary something that is you know engages your other senses of smell and touch um, and really, we're all artists. I, I've actually run workshops on this. Like, it's not just about being an artist and painting these irises of I've done behind me, but musicians, acting, writing, um, all of these things are creativity. And and I, I actively use journaling as well, um, just to journal out my thoughts. And that's a good way of getting rid of anxiety. Um it's interesting. I was part of a chronic pain study in Halifax, and what they were looking at was, were people who were more creative, more resilient in managing their chronic pain? And chronic pain is something that I deal with on an everyday basis, and I was part of that study, and it came out that those of us who engage in a creative practice are actually more resilient at dealing with um, medical issues and pain, but I would say also with dealing with climate anxiety. And and I think I think that's a really really important concept um, to, to to understand. And thank you for this. I appreciate the time you took today. It's a very interesting topic. Sorry, my headset's deciding to fall off. Yes, I really do. And I really encourage everybody to explore your creative self. Take a look at what gives you joy. Something part mm. of something that you do that makes you feel joyful. I do wheelchair dancing, for example. Nobody's looking at me. I'm all by myself <laughs> in my apartment, but I'm dancing with my chair. So, um, yeah, have a great day, everybody. And get out a pen and just doodle. Okay, I like this. Look at the proactive solutions here from Anne Camozzi. Yeah. That's Anne Camozzi, disability rights activist in Nova Scotia. You can follow Anne's work at nncamozzi.com. That's A-N-N-E-C-A-M-O-Z-Z-I.com. nncamozzi.com. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. Canada's main stock index closed at its lowest point since last October, due in part to the effects of U.S. job openings data that indicated continued strength in the economy and the potential need for interest rates to go higher. Toronto's TSX index dropped 156 points to close at 19,020. In New York, the Dow Jones average tumbled 430 points, wiping out the last of its gains for the year so far. And the Nasdaq plunged 248 points, or 1.9%. In Tokyo, this morning, the Nikkei index tumbled 2.3%, and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.96 cents U.S. A network-wide system failure has been resolved at CN Rail that caused chaos for afternoon rush hour commuters yesterday in the greater Toronto area. The outage halted all GO trains, as well as the rail link between Toronto's Union Station and Pearson Airport. CN Rail blamed an internet connectivity and electronic data interchange issue. From the Canadian Press Business desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Gotta love the logic of the stock market. There was positive economic news, therefore the stock market tumbled because that might result in higher interest rates. What kind of world do we live in? Let's go from the world of money before I get upset to the world of weather. Alex Smythe, it's not necessarily uh, good news on the weather front either. 
Yeah, Dave, if you're frustrated with how the economic side works, uh, just wait to be frustrated with how the weather is <laughs> seemingly working. <laughs> uh, yesterday was all about the abnormal heat in Ontario. Well, uh, that's soon going to be changed today. We're focusing in on the polar vortex that is up north that's expected to dip its way down south this weekend. So a cold mass in the Arctic will make its way down to the prairies by Friday. Saskatchewan and Manitoba will see highs in the single digits. So Saskatoon, which will have a high expected around 8 degrees, will be slightly warmer than Regina, which is only expecting to be up to 6 degrees on Friday. But Brandon, Manitoba is going to be even colder at three degrees while Regina is hovering around six degrees as well. So it's going to be very cold out in the prairies very quickly. I don't think but people that, in the prairies would call that very cold. No, but just, uh, just as a reflection of how quickly it's changing yeah, now. Yeah, that's true. For Ontario, it's uh, we've enjoyed this warm weather. Well, that's going to change because that polar vortex is going to be moving its way eastward. And it's going to be hitting us right around the Thanksgiving weekend. So Moosonee was experiencing extremely unusual above average temperatures this earlier this week. That's going to be replaced by the... Uh, seasonal to below seasonal cold and a chance of snow, Dave. Yeah, snow. Going from 19 plus above uh, seasonal to, oh, here's a chance of snow for you on the weekend. Uh, so needless to say, this yo-yo effect when it comes to weather, it's going to be taking place all over Quebec, Ontario. So be ready for that volatile transition. Yeah, time. yeah. I'm, I'm headed to Montreal this weekend for a 40th birthday party, and I'm packing all kinds of stuff because when I get there on Friday night, it's going to be 17 degrees. When I leave on Monday morning, apparently it's going to be about three degrees. So uh, we got we to gotta plan. We got to plan for some uh, movement on the old uh, thermometer and thermostat over there. Thank you very much, Alex. That's Alex Smythe with the weather report coming up after the break. Things are getting a bit spooky in Winnipeg. Derek Lackey. Describe some festivity to get you into the Halloween spirit. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You are watching now with Dave Brown live on AMI-tv, or maybe you're listening to the podcast on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Don't forget to like, subscribe, review, five-star rating, share with your friends, all that good stuff. The haunted season is in full swing. Venues are transforming to capture the spirit of Halloween, from ghosts to goblins and everything in between. There's an event out there that will spook you. Derek Lackey is a community reporter in Winnipeg. He's going to highlight a few events in his neck of the creepy woods. Hey, good morning, Derek. Good morning, Dave. How's it going? Derek, I am good. So there's a couple events going on around you. One in particular is the Haunted Forest in St. Adolphe, Manitoba. How scary is this event going to be? 
You know what? This event is fantastic. It's put on every year by the Amazing Corn um, Farm out here where they do everything from sunflowers to petting zoos to ice mazes. And at Halloween time, we pull out the Forbidden Forest where we can go out and enjoy ourselves here in the Haunted Forest. And you know what? This event is well done every year. We have amazing actors out there that are uh, auditioned and portrayed as various Halloween spooks and ghouls. And it is just an all-around good time as you are dumped off at the opening of the Haunted Forest. And you need to make your way through without either losing your lunch or crying. Uh, speaking of that, losing your lunch or crying, you're a parent. How appropriate would this be for maybe a younger child or a younger family? So this event, they do have recommended show times for younger children. Uh, if it is something you're interested in, it's much more family friendly between that 3.30 to 5.30 type range. So it is earlier. There is still quite a bit of light out. And that is going to be the time if you do have some younger kids, you're going to want to bring them with you, obviously keeping them very close. Um, because it it can be a little overwhelming and spooky. Uh, obviously not for my little guy. He's he's a crazy little kid just like myself. And <laughs> we quite enjoy being uh, being scared or people trying to scare us. But um, definitely there is a better show time for younger kids, and that's that three thirty to five thirty range. Okay, fantastic. And there are some points of contact here, cornmaze.ca, cornmaze.ca to learn a little bit more. And uh, this haunted forest is going to be running all the way till October the 29th in St. Adolph. Tickets, $33.50 for adults, $31.50 for children under 12. Sticking with the forest theme here, Derek, the Deer Meadow Farms will be holding its annual Halloween festivities on Friday the 13th. That lines up nicely. The space is described as a forbidden forest. What's the scoop? So the Forbidden Forest uh, is is also another uh, event that they put on at Deer Meadow. Uh, for the younger children, they have the Fairy Tale Forest, um, where it's much more oriented for children. We took Nino, I think it was last year, and it's fantastically done for the young kids. All about the fairy tales, everything from Red Riding to the Three Little Pigs. And as they make their way through and they either answer some riddles or help answer some questions, they get little pieces of candy as they go. Perfect, perfect scenario for kids. Wonderfully done. Couldn't rave about it anymore. The Forbidden Forest, definitely more older kid and adult oriented, including even a blood bar at the end where adults can stop and get themselves a little beverage after after making their way through. But much again, uh, actors, you know, auditioning to get uh, various roles. They've added two new dioramas this year um, that they're adding to their over 20 diorama set throughout their forest out there. Can't wait to go out and check it out again this year. But definitely uh, a spookier time inside the Forbidden Forest than the fairy tale. <laughs> Derek, I can I can feel your enthusiasm a little bit here. Sometimes you're a little bit reserved, but I can tell that you're pretty excited about this stuff. What's your vibe on Friday the Thirteenth? Are you superstitious at all about it? Not superstitious at all, Dave. I have always been uh, a big one for ghouls, goblins, aliens. Uh, the very creepy scary you know decrepit all that kind of stuff it's it's right up my alley always has been 
Um, that's kind of been my movie journey too. I've always been big into horror movies. I still haven't found a movie to actually scare me. And, and it's a big thing every year, <laughs> big thing every year for Halloween. People try to try to scare me. And especially since losing my eyesight is trying to come up and, and, and scare me, which Amanda is, I've kept trying to get her to take me to a couple of the hidden forests or haunted forests. And, uh, you know, she sits there, she always says the same thing every year. She's like, well, what's the point? Nobody can scare you. It's, <laughs> you're going to either hear them coming or you just, it, you're just used to things pumping out at you. But it's the fun of being there. It's the fun of making your way through. It's the fun of watching the actors try and just eventually give up because they can't scare me. Derek, you are a more resilient soul than I. I. I used to be like you. I used to be able to watch the horror movies and have no problem with it, and now I uh, get a little emotionally beat up. That said, I've uh, seen the commercials for the new Exorcist movies, and I think I'm going to go because it looks absolutely terrifying, but I like I like watching the good stuff. You know, like I'm at this point where I'm not going to watch the bad horror movies anymore, but when I see something that I like, I'm going to take the plunge and sacrifice the fact that I won't sleep for three or four days afterwards. Well, the the ringtone on my phone happens to be the theme for The Exorcist. So I mean, I'm 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 all I'm all about creeping out the people, especially when they're all sitting there and somebody goes, "Is that The Exorcist?" And I'm I'm answering my phone, and they're like, "What is wrong with this guy?" Oh my gosh! But I remember being I remember being sighted going to see Paranormal Activity in the theater, and in the one movie where the little girl gets picked up by her ponytail and people were screaming their face off in the theater you just heard this one lonely hysterical laugh <laughs> and it was me sitting in my chair laughing hilariously and then i heard people yelling at me like what is wrong with you you're a psychopath oh my gosh the power of Derek lackey compels you Derek. thank you for this have a great day you too, Dave. Thanks. Deer Meadow Farms will be holding its annual Halloween festivity on October the 13th. For more information, DeerMeadowFarms.com. All that stuff's going to go up on the blog after the show, ami.ca slash now. And Derek Lackey is a community reporter in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Coming up in 60 seconds, Amanda Shkarchi has a story all about the very popular series, Only Crimes in the Building. But first, there are questions about the durability of the iPhone 15 Pro. Mike Dubusky has the story in Tech Trends. Some online reviewers, such as YouTube's Jerry Rig Everything, yeah, I'm going to be honest, I did not see that one coming, have found the glass on the new iPhone 15 Pro cracks easily under pressure. We saw the video, not only that one, but another video that was also showing cracks on the back glass. Consumer Reports' Maria Ryasich says they tested the 15 Pro, dropping it a hundred times onto a concrete surface, finding no damage. They also applied over a hundred pounds of pressure to to the phone and we went up to 110 pounds of force it didn't crack that's quite a lot of force she says the phones in the videos were likely defective and there's you know many many phones a small percentage will have some sort of a failure it doesn't mean that it's a characteristic of the model with tech trends i'm mike debusky abc news Thank you very much, Mike. Amanda Shikarchi, today's entertainment story comes from the season finale of a very, very popular show. 
Yes, thanks, Dave. And it's actually a show that I've actually been following recently. I do have some catching up to do, but I do like it. So the finale of Only Murders in the Building dropped on Disney Plus yesterday. Hulu also announced that there will be season four. The fictional show follows three neighbors, Charles, played by Steve Martin, Oliver, played by Martin Short, and Mabel, played by Selena Gomez. They started a podcast after their former resident, Tim Kono, was murdered. However, the current case is solving Ben's murder, who is the lead actor in Oliver's play. So, Dave, why do you think the true crime genre is so popular? I uh, still don't quite understand, Amanda. I, I, I know that people connect with it. I don't know if it's they put themselves in the shoes of the victim or they put themselves in the shoes of the criminal. I, I don't have a good theory on why true crime remains so popular, but I can objectively tell you, oh, goodness gracious, Amanda, it is super popular. Everybody I'm talking to uh, is telling me about what true crime series they're into or what podcast they're into. To. So I, I I have no clue. I can't figure it out. It's one of the great mysteries in my time. Why do you think it's so popular? So I'm going to go a little deep here because um, I'm definitely a crime junkie. I love reading like mysteries, thrillers, and true crime podcasts. So I'm going to go a little bit with psychology. I find it interesting to analyze people's behavior when it comes to, you know, what motivated them to commit the crime and also what was happening in their life during the time of the crime to decide to act out in that way. Because, you know, once you analyze people's behavior and their environment, you can kind of understand why they do what they do. So I find that aspect to crime shows very fascinating when you try to figure out who did it. Um, so what elements do you look for when watching crime shows? Again, not a big fan of, of like the genre of true crime, but I do enjoy crime shows. So like the Breaking Bads, the Sopranos, the Better Call Saul's, uh, Oz. I, I love movies like Goodfellas and Casino and bank heist movies. So I think what I look for, Amanda, in the kind of crime content that I consume is I look for moral ambiguity. I like characters that are flawed. I like good guys that have big time flaws in their personalities. I like bad guys that have redeeming qualities. I like even being able to move away from any notion of good guy or bad guy. I like it when it's just feeling a little bit more slice of life and an ethical and moral examination of a life of crime. And a couple of the shows and movies that I mentioned there do that really, really well. So what I look for is moral ambiguity and character conflict in my crime content what about you i love that and especially when you have like the big plot twist of the reveal where like the person you think most would not be capable of committing the crime ends up being the one who does it i always find that so fascinating and one show that i think that i've other than only murders that i thought did a really good job of the execution is um this show called big sky which sadly not being renewed for um season four but i thought the writing was great and i do like when you have crime shows that 
let you be in the heads of the detectives as well as the people who are committing the crime because I feel like you get a multi-perspective. Yeah. And I love seeing the scenes in the courtroom. Those are always so fascinating to watch. Uh, Multi-narrative storytelling. Definitely a fan of that as well. Amanda, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you so much. That's Amanda Shikarchi with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news updates, and then uh, you'll find out how upset Brock Richardson is at the Blue Jays' performance yesterday in Game 1 of their playoff series against the Minnesota Twins. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, October the 4th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the town of Arborfield, Saskatchewan, has gone to court over a school closure. Journalist John Lepke explains how this closure may impact the entire town. And the Canadian Transportation Agency has ruled that Air Canada needs to better accommodate passengers with disabilities. Elizabeth Moeller will reflect on that story. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Beginning in British Columbia, British Columbia's government is updating its disaster and emergency response legislation. Emergency Management Minister Bowen Ma feels existing legislation was too narrow in its focus. It is no longer good enough for us to be only focused on response and then recovery. We must also be better at being proactive, at preparing for and mitigating the impacts of disasters before they happen. Ma says the legislation is in line with international best practices on mitigation. In a related story, British Columbia's ombudsperson released a report on how the government responded to the 2021 climate emergencies. Jay Chalk says existing policies exclude a lot of vulnerable people. A major takeaway from this report is that trying to deliver government programs, especially in extreme situations like this, equity needs to be built into that process. A one-size-fits-all approach that we've seen in the past in terms of emergency support is short-sighted and doesn't uh, do nearly enough to meet the needs of a diverse public that it's trying to serve. His report makes 20 recommendations for the government. They include ensuring reception centers are accessible to all evacuees. BC's government has committed to implementing all 20 of the recommendations. And over to Toronto. Toronto's real estate board has released its September numbers. Don Kelly takes a closer look. The Toronto Regional Real Estate Board reports sales were down 12.1% from August, with the biggest declines coming in sales of semi-detached houses and townhouses. It attributes the downward trend to the impact of high borrowing costs, high inflation, uncertainty surrounding future Bank of Canada decisions, and slower economic growth. The average home price was up 3% from a year ago to more than $1.1 million. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Okay, here comes Dave Brown going after the mainstream media again, the mass media again. That story is framed as, oh my gosh, the sky is falling in Toronto real estate. Oh my gosh, the volume numbers are way down. And by the way, prices went up year over year, 3% to over $1.1 million. 
The order you choose to present facts matters. And I think you have to really start looking at year over year price increases rather than simply how many houses got sold? Because does it really matter? At the end of the day, if the prices are still going up by $30,000 year over year, and you're still talking about an affordability crisis. You're still talking about tons of value for homeowners. Just think about that. Every time you hear an economic story, you've got to listen to the whole thing. And you've got to go beyond just the headlines. And that's something that I take great pride in. I'm talking to you every morning about the economy. As I've told you before, now with Dave Brown, the sole arbiter of the truth on monetary policy and inflation. Okay, let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, the Major League Baseball playoffs are underway. Four games on the docket yesterday, four more today. Brock, is it fair to say that yesterday's four games were simultaneously compelling but also underwhelming? Yes, I would absolutely agree. I I really enjoyed the uh, National League games more than I did the American League games. I thought that they were uh, more interesting to watch. There was more stuff going on, it seemed, rather than the American League games. There, there seemed to be some stuff to talk about in the American League games, of course, well, but just well, overall. Let, let me give you a point of reference there. You referenced the National League generally. The Milwaukee Brewers and Arizona Diamonds back game was exceptionally good in the sense that Milwaukee burst out to an early 3-0 lead. Arizona then erased that lead, took the lead, and never let go, but pretty much every inning featured runners on base, featured important pitches, important at-bats. There was something about that game that felt like a playoff baseball game. The other three, a team got out early and never looked back. Right, and it it just sort of seemed, and I, and I prefer the games where it's kind of like a uh, seesaw battle. Like, I don't like sitting there for three, four innings and, like, nothing happening. Give me something. Even if it's a hit and run, give me something. And I just found that instead I was watching managers walk out to mounds and, <laughs> and change pitchers, and it's just like, this isn't compelling. Rather, it's more frustrating than anything else, you know, because when you try to schedule yourself in the evening and you're like, oh, this should be over at this time, and they're only in the seventh inning at the time you suggested it to be over for, you know, Catherine to come visit me, it's like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> there was eight pitching changes, you know, in the same window. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say that I'm interested to see what kind of bounce back we see today. Uh, from these games, but man, that uh, Diamondbacks game, uh, Milwaukee Brewers was good, and I look forward to it again. I wish it was a bit earlier, but uh, hey, we live. The break. We live. So, Brock, what is compelling though about today is that because the series are so short, because they're three game series, every single game today is an elimination game. And that's kind of awesome. Maybe not so much if you're a Toronto Blue Jays fan, because if you want to talk about listless and underwhelming, that is how I would describe how the Blue Jays played yesterday. Well, let me, let me give you a, a phrase. They are who we thought they were. I mean, we, we saw exactly what we've seen all year runners on base you know, not cashing them in. We see Bo Bichette, you know, making a brain fart decision on, on a on an error sort of situation where the, the third baseman just gaffed on it, but instead oh, he goes ooh, in. Oh, Brock, Brock, stop. Got, got to describe that play properly. Minnesota's yeah. third baseman erred in handling a, a hard-hit ball, and it trickled behind him. 
Blue Jays infielder Bo Bichette saw the error and sprinted around third base and ran for home to try and get that point on the board. And the shortstop for the Minnesota Twins, Carlos Correa, who is sneaky, 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 one of the best players in all of baseball, darts over to get that ball off the infield and fires it home to throw Bo Bichette out. That might have been the play of the game. So I know you called that a brain fart. I just think it was an exceptional play by, by Carlos Correa. It was. You are right. It was. If I was Bo, I don't think I would have. I would have uh, ran through there. I, I know that hindsight is is twenty twenty, and if it worked out, it would have. You know, whatever we would have moved on. But bases loaded and a base hit would have scored two runs. And I know it was hard to come by hits yesterday. He was out by a lot yesterday, Bo Bichette. and Carlos Correa. As much as every radio station this morning, I, I was listening to Carlos Correa. They were like. Yeah, but that's a harder play than what he how he made it look. Like he he made that look real easy. But to me, Bobichet was out by a long shot. I would have never done that. And the third base coach for the Toronto Blue Jays was holding up the stop sign. So yeah, I mean, obviously yeah. the third base coach decided that that wasn't a good choice. And now, he's the now now that's a really important point that you raise right there, Brock. The third base coach did put up the stop sign and said, "Don't go, don't go, don't go. We got to be smart here." And you actually saw that a couple of times yesterday with Bo Bichette and uh, a few of the a few of the uh, the outfielders, Kevin Kermeyer and Dalton Varsho. Even in the first inning, there was a pop up hit where they had a big time miscommunication about who was supposed to take that ball, and it really you could tell that the team was jittery yesterday, and that was the same mistake they made in a Seattle game last year in the playoffs. So once again, it seems like maybe a couple of the baseball fundamentals that are very important were not being met by the Blue Jays yesterday. Can, can I also say that I think part of the tendency yesterday, and I'm not putting this fully on this, but I'm putting part of it. Kevin Gosman, it it was no secret that Kevin Gosman struggled against the Minnesota Twins. So for me, I, I believe that that was part of it. I think that the Minnesota Twins have something on Kevin Gosman's slider. They know for whatever reason when or how he's going to throw his slider because they were not offering at anything. Yeah. So for me, for me, yesterday was kind of a situation where the Blue Jays went, we need to score runs and we need to score them quick because we know our pitcher is having some struggles. And if we look at, you know, George Springer uh, in the eighth inning, I believe it was when he hit that really far shot into center field and Minnesota's center fielder pulled it off the wall. I mean, in in most other ballparks, that's going out. You just hit it to the wrong part of the ballpark. But that's been the story of the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah. They're just not hitting it where they need to. But I digress. Here we go. Today we got uh, another game going on, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, part but, of yeah. part of the uh, Blue Jays' season, as you say, you know who they are, who you thought they were. The one thing they've shown all year is a sense of resilience. Every time their back's been against the wall, they've they've come back with really strong performances. And I wonder if that's where they're at today. If this team sort of thrives on a little bit of crisis and urgency, it's a very bad habit to get into as a baseball team. But I think it's also very human, and that's where they're at today. But the guy they're going up against, the pitcher from Minnesota. Ray, this guy is no joke. This is a veteran professional pitcher who knows how to get guys out, and that's going to be a tough, tough matchup for the Jays. Yeah, it is, and and um, it's you. But the thing is, Dave, you're going to run into these these pitching matchups all through the playoffs. Whether yeah, you go teams. one round, two rounds, you're you're going to run into the good pitchers. And Sonny Gray is no joke. He's not as good as he 
once was, of course, but he's still there. And the Blue Jays just need to get off to a, a better start than they did yesterday. And I know it sounds really cliche to do that, but it's it, you've got to you've got to jump out early to to do this. And I, you know, all the narratives I was hearing yesterday evening was, oh, you know, they're down. You know, one nothing. But newsflash: somebody is going to be down one nothing in every playoff series. Somebody wins, somebody loses. Somebody was going to be down one nothing. Yeah, we hope that it wasn't the Toronto Blue Jays, but here we are, and now you just got to win two in a row, which is going to be a real tough task. But it's not insurmountable, as we've seen this team decide that when they want to play and when they don't. So noted, hopefully today's the day. Noted mathematician Brock Richardson. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. Enjoy the games. Thank you. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. The town of Arborfield, Saskatchewan has gone to court over a school closure. Journalist John Lepke will explore the implications of the closure. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A rural town in Nova, not Nova Scotia, in Saskatchewan, I don't know why I did that, has gone to court over a school closure. The town of Arborfield has filed an injunction against the Northeast School Division. The concerns are of the impact the closure will have across the entire town. John Lepke has more details. John is a journalist in Saskatchewan. Hey, good morning, John. Good morning. So, John, why'd the town decide to take the school board to court? Well, there's some there's some broad strokes and then there's specifics. So the argument that they made in front of the court and their key point in the argument was that this was going to have an outsized economic impact on the town. Um, high school students not being around to 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 buy lunches and, and the economic impact of that. Um but this is an issue that we see again and again in Saskatchewan. The the uh, judge noted that this is the first case that had come to the Court of King's Bench, but certainly won't be the last, where as, as people leave Saskatchewan small towns, as they have been in their droves in the last few decades, these schools that used to be large and bastions of their community, if we want to call it that, um, are now seeing graduating classes of, in Arborfield's case, one. Oh, uh, yes, that is a small, small graduating class. There's no doubt about it. So what are the, okay, let, let's go with the theory the school does close. What are the alternatives? So the alternatives is that they go to the next uh, town over with a sizable school. That would be Carrot River in this case. Um, Arborfield has held on to their elementary school students. So this would be uh, grade 7 to 12. Uh John, what 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 are the what are the residents of the town saying? The, the, the residents of the town are saying that this has an outsized economic impact. Now, the the judge uh, dismissing the temporary injunction didn't see uh, didn't think that case held water. In fact, um, pointed out that no uh, none of the high school students were quoted in the in the complaint brought at the Court of King's Bench. But that doesn't mean, I don't think, in, in what's happening here in Saskatchewan that uh, that school closures aren't a concern for broader community. This was just one, um, one method to try to prevent 
some of the decay, if we can call it that, in Saskatchewan's small towns. So you mentioned that the judge was somewhat unconvinced by the argument. Where do things go from here? So this is a temporary injunction. So from here, the school division has declined uh, to comment, given that it is still going through the court. So it remains to be seen. This is a uh, a fairly long process. This injunction was originally considered in June, um, and then this decision recently in September. So we'll see where it goes from here. And what will be interesting to see is if other um, schools who are facing the same challenges. We saw a big consolidation of school divisions in the late 2000s, for example, um, try to use the courts more, um, given that the Court of King's Bench at least has indicated that they will uh, entertain these cases, even if they may not side with a temporary injunction. Yeah, John, I, I'm curious about the bigger picture here, because I'm sure somebody watching this morning would go, how much funding and how much can be put into place for a school of one person? So like, what's the bigger picture here? Well, the challenge is that that what usually funding in Saskatchewan is on a student basis, right? So what you have is these schools where the building is really expensive. That was pointed out in this decision um, that that the Arborfield School has some of the highest bills in the school division for maintenance for not very many students to make up that shortfall. We're also in a province where it is hard to get teachers in these in these smaller school divisions. And so consolidation is the key. Now, one of the arguments that the parents made is that Carrot River, um, that this was all just a ploy to uh, to allow Carrot River to survive. And so there's a little bit of, it seems, um, uh, to put it mildly, uh, small town politics going on here. Mm. Um, but it remains to be seen that when the school is the center of your community, it, it stands to reason that it's a really hard blow to the community when a large portion of that school um, will be going somewhere else. Yeah, th there's no doubt that a school is a key piece of fabric to a community. And the fact is, if a community does not have a school, who's going to move to that community, right? Like, what person is going to say, I'm going to pick up my stuff and move my family somewhere where there's not actively a school, right? It, it, mm -hmm. it, ends, up, it ends up becoming a, a cycle in and of itself. Exactly. It's one of the key things that people look at. And so, exactly, it stands to reason that that this will have an economic impact, um, but on the balance of things, uh, the the arguments made in the in the estimation of cold water, at least for a, for a temporary injunction. Okay, switching gears here, John. The Accessible Saskatchewan Act is moving forward. You have spoken about this previously, but the government is looking to bring in members to the commission. So, what are they looking for? Yeah, so uh, you can't go on Facebook. Maybe it's just the company I keep, but you can't go on Facebook without seeing a sponsored ad uh, for uh, the committee. They're looking for applications. And really, they're mandated to have a significant number of disabled people or, quote, people, um, or paraphrasing here, uh, people who support and represent the disability community <laughs> on this committee. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, just like the it was interesting to see how the Accessible Canada Act um uh patronage if we can call it that worked out uh who will end up on this committee like other provinces in canada saskatchewan has a history of disability nonprofits not being disability led um and being led by uh people who who make their careers in the disability space that doesn't mean making a comment on their their ability to do the job um but there is some cause of uh of interest into how exactly this will this will play out.
Yeah, John, there's a significant correlation in building the right committee and getting the legislation right. That if you bring in the wrong perspective, you're going to get bad legislation. And if you get bad legislation, you're not going to solve anything. Yeah, I think, uh, what's that old adage? Committees are where ideas go to die. Um, but, but okay, yes, yes, that is a very cynical position. But it's also, <laughs> it's also a place where things go to get sorted out and right with proper perspective. Exactly. What I was going to say is that the, uh, if, if we're looking at this from a deeply pessimistic view, it would be that committees are, are a challenge. But in relation to this, we have um, we have uh, the it's also true that, as you say, committees are also the solution to the problem. I mean, this is an act when asked about a timeline, they pointed to the OADA um, and it's oh like the oh timeline as a reason as a reason not to have a timeline, which I would argue is uh, perhaps not the takeaway one. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, their timeline was so bad we shouldn't have one. Uh, it's a uniquely governmental position, I think. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the fact remains that this is an act of recruitment. And so that's an exciting uh, development as this moves forward, um, because at least the voices are going to be there. And once the voices are in place, that's when we can really take a critical and optimistic, hopefully, uh, I know I haven't been the most optimistic person this morning, um, uh, optimistic view as to how this legislation can develop and how it can create people access for people in Saskatchewan. Because, you know, we're still at the early stages of access, I think we can argue, in this province, even compared to some of the other Canadian provinces and what they've done with their accessibility legislation. Yeah, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act uh, being used as a template for anything seems a little bit silly because it's uh, almost 20 years since it's been passed and uh, they are going to miss their 2025 deadline in a big, big, big way. So I don't know that anybody should be using that as a template, but I, but I do want to circle back to this idea of although there's a rolling of our eyes anytime you hear about a committee or a focus group or a consultation there is value to be provided but again I'm gonna reassert my position that's why these kinds of recruitments are important and that's why it's important that if you're at all interested and you want to be an advocate on this or an activist on this you do have to apply you can't, you can't just sit on the mm -hmm. outside on the outside looking in not having been applied and then be like look at this terrible committee they put together like you we yeah. as individuals have an onus to go be the change we want and I think we have to, when that committee is in place, we have to be willing to look at why um, why a multitude of voices need to be at that table. And always the, the onus and, and the challenge with these things is, you know, the history of disability activism in this country, I think it's fair to argue, has long been dominated by, and I'll put my hand up, uh, ambulatory wheelchair users or, or so-called super crips in parasport spaces. Um, and so what I'm really looking for is a, a multitude of, of disability experiences um, beyond those we tend to see on these committees, which tend to be white, privileged, and, and um, you know, powerful in their own right. I think the danger here is that it becomes an exercise of how good of a resume can you put together for this right, application. Right. And so I'm really hoping that we see people from even underrepresented groups within the disability community in this province, um, because it it's so it can be so challenging to live multiply marginalized in this place. Mm -hmm. Hey, John, thank you for an update on both these stories. It's much appreciated. Thanks for having me.
That is John Lepke, journalist based in Saskatchewan. Coming up after the break, the Canadian Transportation Agency has ruled that Air Canada needs to better accommodate passengers with disabilities. Elizabeth Moeller will reflect on the story, and so will I. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Canadian Transportation Agency has ruled that Air Canada needs to better accommodate passengers with disabilities, specifically people who use wheelchairs. It stems from a complaint by Tim Rose. Air Canada told him that he could not buy an airline ticket to Cleveland in 2016. They claimed his wheelchair was too big to fit on the plane. A CTA tribunal found that Air Canada had a duty to accommodate a client regardless of the size of a chair. The tribunal said Air Canada needs to make decisions about the equipment and planes they buy so that they're better designed to include people with disabilities. This story has Elizabeth Moeller's attention. This story has my attention. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Dave. We're leaving on a jet plane. Leaving on a jet plane. So, Elizabeth, what is your takeaway from the CTA, CTA tribunal ruling? I think it's a step for sure in the right direction. It's it's definitely long overdue. It's interesting that planes are one of the only transportation methods where people can't safely uh, sit in their own chair, but also interesting to know that other modes of transportation have gotten there by, uh, unfortunately, legal action. I think, you know, what it's showing is that people with disabilities um, are still not a priority or still not considered, even though from a business perspective, that's absolutely wrong, considering that we're 22% of the population. Um, but I think what it tells me too, is that this is really something that we need to start thinking about again, as our population ages, but the timing that, that it took, um, I think for sure shows a, a lot of dedication on the part of the person that, uh, that submitted the complaint. But I also, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm also concerned because we still have a long way to go, not just with physical disabilities, but with other types of disabilities as well mm. when navigating airspaces. Yeah, th there's a lot to unpack here. I was also struck by the timeline, Elizabeth, mm -hmm. 2016 to 2023. Oh. That, that, that's a long time. And, and there's no time. doubt this is a victory. I don't want to diminish that. I don't want no. to diminish the advocacy that went into this, nor the outcome, because I think the outcome is important. The notion that the CTA is telling Air Canada some of these jets you're buying for short Flights are not appropriate if they cannot fit a power wheelchair. That strikes me as an important component of this ruling. But the timeline, the idea mm -hmm. that it takes seven years to catalyze change through a legal pathway, I get it. Lawyers are all about dotting I's and crossing T's, and it's important to get the legal process right. Seven years is a long time, though. What does that time. suggest to you about legal pathways to catalyze change? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I think it, it, you know, and you said this in the in the last segment, Dave, and I want to pick up on it. You know, if we if we want to see change, we have to be a part of that change. So I commend you know Tim for for doing this, but it's also a lot of persistence. It's it's you have to have a lot of ability to engage with with documentation and to be articulate and 
you have to also be somebody who really wants to see this through. Uh, I'm not sure that I would have seven years of, of fight in me. And I think there's also um, a lot of people for whom this, this emotional labor and energy wouldn't be possible. So the timeline uh, concerns me from, for sure, the perspective of what this takes along, but also for a lot of people that just wouldn't be um, something that, that, that they would be able to withstand. And I think, I think what this shows us for sure is that, um, you know, that there's there's a lot of work to be done here around how decisions are, are made and, and, you know, who they're affecting in the process. Yeah, I, I think they would literally refer to this as an equity lens in terms yeah. of in terms yeah. of decision making, in terms of purchasing yeah. power. That's something that the federal government said they were going to start utilizing in procurement policy when it comes yep. to products or services that could intersect or cross for persons with disabilities. This is another example of that. Buying yep. airplanes that meet a certain standard of inclusion for persons with disabilities, like that is quite literally the definition of an equity lens. Absolutely. And it's concerning to me, um, and this was quoted in several articles, that Air Canada told Mr. Rose that if, you know, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. It, this isn't just a convenient piece of luggage that he wants to bring. So that that equating really bothered me. And I think uh, obviously it was it bothered a lot of people. But I think I think part of the problem comes down to I don't think that people expect that we're going to travel or that we are able to travel independently. And I, like I said, this case gives me a lot of hope, but there's a lot of work to be done, not just with physical disabilities, but with visual, sensory, and other types of disabilities. Yeah. Um, certainly I've had, I'm sure you've had too, a lot of experiences on the plane that are that are less than favorable. <laughs> I just don't like getting on airplanes. It's just, it's part of, it's like built into my DNA. I like, I, I like going places. I don't like the, I don't like the process of getting there. You just want to teleport, there. Dave. Yeah, that's, that's precisely, that's precisely it. Okay, well, well, Elizabeth, along those lines, there's another news story in the airline space, and that's staffing shortages. Yep. Airlines are struggling to fill service positions. They're also struggling to find pilots. Like, it, like it's pretty mm -hmm. stunning how yeah. many service uh, vacancies there are across the airline. What is your thought in regard to how that may impact the travel experience for people with disabilities? Yeah, for sure. I mean, just last Friday, the, the pilots at Pearson had a, a walkout based on um, wanting more favorable working conditions mm. and better pay. So we, we see this. Um, it's concerning for me. I know myself, I've been left stranded because of being short staffed. Um, I've had to rely on other passengers, and that's absolutely not something I should have to do. Uh, the, the biggest challenge for me is always getting connections. So you're on the plane and there's staff on the plane, but then they rely on the airport staff on the ground to get you from A to B. Um, and it becomes a challenge, especially when you're connecting to something that's not a flight, like a ferry or a train. Um, and so it's, it's for me, it's concerning. It's made me really rethink how and when and where I travel. So I never travel at peak times like holidays, which is inconvenient because you want to travel during those right. times. Yeah. Um, you know, like I'll go a week before for um, Christmas, for example um i never travel you know uh, at the end of the day because i know people especially those business flights a lot of people are going to be getting on them but at the, and i also will try to make sure that on the plane or you know as i'm boarding the plane i'm connecting with other passengers just in case i need help but those are all things that i shouldn't have to do but i'm starting to think differently about how i travel i'm even calling air canada medical the day before just to remind them that i'm coming yes, and that i have yes. a disability but, you know, the problem, Dave, isn't just the, the Air Canada, but it's also at the airport. And how do you get sort of to the plane? Sometimes I've had mm -hmm. to wait up to an mm -hmm. hour for help, right? So I think it's a really thinking about a holistic approach to, like, I wish there was an app that you could just say, I'm going to be here. I need someone to meet me here and I need to go here. 
Yeah, it's it's layers to it, right? That you can it get is. you can grade onion. you can grade all you can get all the positive Air Canada yeah. interaction yeah. in the world, yep. but then you might yep. not get it at Pearson or Trudeau Airport or or, exactly. a, or YVR in Vancouver. There's there's the possibility of a service gap somewhere along those lines. Elizabeth, what I've noticed is there are a lot of newer people who are being put mm -hmm. in these positions, younger people yep. in these positions. Yep. And by the way, like that like that is natural. Awesome, like right? like that is fantastic. Yep. You want new blood, new people, fresh career opportunities for people to come through but maybe what was 10 or 15 years from a seasoned veteran in a service position, some of that accessibility or disability knowledge didn't get passed yes. along. That's yes. what I've been observing working Me my too. way through some of these uh, major travel hubs right now is that yeah. it's, it's like whatever the chaos was last summer or, or the summer of 2022, I don't think it's that anymore, but it just seems like policy and procedure is mm -hmm. not quite up to sn snuff. Like, the standard isn't as high as it was, say, a couple of years ago, because maybe yeah. there hasn't been the appropriate training for people to be proactive, announcing, hey, this is the gate or this is the line. It's just like a lot of silence or talking on their walkie-talkies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, I, I think you're right. And I mean, I, I noticed that as I was going through security last week to travel, you know, rightfully so, they need to sometimes remove things from your bag. I wasn't told that. So I went to grab my bag at the end of the line and I noticed it was lighter. And I asked one of the security attendants, could you know, could you let me know where my stuff is that was removed? And they just pointed and said, it's over in the holding. Yeah, and I tried to explain yeah. that I couldn't see. And so I think you're right. It's, it's the training piece that's missing, but it's also a, a layer of communication, right? So we need to take your laptop out of your bag Bag. we're going to give it to you at the end, or we need to remove this from your bag. I think that's a big piece. And it's also a safety piece. Like I want to take this one step further. It's not just an inconvenience when people aren't communicating. There's a, there's a layer of safety. I could have had medication in there that was taken out that I didn't know about. So I, I think there's, there's a real need for training from for sure customer service, but also the safety piece. Yeah. hundred percent. What about some proactivity here, Elizabeth, yeah. because I don't want to, I don't want to end this on a totally negative no, note saying, Oh no, not. it's terrible. Because frankly, <laughs> I do think the experience yeah. over Overall, like if I was to overall grade it, I would I would still give the airports a general passing grade here yeah, me too. in a lot of in a lot of the interactions, especially yeah. when I do proactively reach out for a little bit of assistance. Me Generally too. speaking, the assistance I get is good, if not yeah. better than good. But I yeah. do think about independence a lot yes. as well. What do you think an airline or an airport could do to proactively improve the experience for a passenger with a disability? Yeah, I think we touched on it, but I want to go back to it. I think those wraparound supports. So like most of all on the plane, the service has been fine. It's those gaps. So whether it is, you know, you putting in a request through the airline that they communicate to the airport or using um, some kind of an app where you say, this is where I'm going to be. Um, you know, I need someone to meet me here. I think there's also a lot of... Um, you know, positive things that could be done around just sort of that that um, check-in point, because often at the airport, you're handed off from one person to another. So some consistency, like yeah. if there's one person that could walk you all the way through. I know that may not be possible all the time, but I think sometimes that's where those, again, those gaps happen. Um, but I think another proactive thing that sounds so obvious, just asking us what we need. Like, I don't need a wheelchair. I'm glad they're there for people that do, but I do need sighted guide and I need someone to communicate when they're leaving um, or when they're coming to get me. So I think just asking what you need is a really big piece and it sounds obvious but it's part of that communication that customer service
I would almost say it would be some kind of disability concierge service. I know yeah. that makes it sound so glammy. No, uh, Dave like, Brown's like glam concierge <laughs> service. I'm for it. I'm yeah. for it, Dave. Look, I know it sounds kind of glammy and bougie, but I think if there was maybe a direct check-in point that was some kind no. of information yeah. desk right when you got to an airport, that would be really good. I also think yeah. there'd be some merit in easier-to-access information. Like, I don't know if you're ever trying to find your gate number on oh. the on the Pearson yes. website in the morning. Yes. Like, like I, listen, I don't use a screen reader, but even with my Zoom tech technology, I, yeah. I find it to be a dreadful I do the experience. App, the Air Canada app, so, which is not bad. Which is not which is not, not bad, bad, but still like not, but still not great. great. I no. also think now now they might the airlines and airports might flag this as a security thing, but I would love if there was some kind of easy to read orientation map about mm -hmm. generally where I'm trying to go once I get to the airport. Um, better signage. I mean, that's something for me from a low vision perspective that is more valuable than for others, but I find Eric, I find the Pearson signage situation is yeah. just awful, awful, awful. You walk in, especially Terminal 1, you walk into Terminal oh. 1, and it's totally unclear where the bag drop is, where the check-in station is. It's like wild, wild, wild chaos. But I think if there was some kind of like laid-out orientation map that I could at least gander a look at before I yep. got to the airport, now at least I can self-orient a little bit before I might require some assistance. Well, and again, I recognize there might be some security issues with this, but yeah. I wonder about getting, um, you know, some kind of pass or whatever, where if you are needing help and you have your own, especially if they're busy, if you have your own support person, that they can come with you through security, obviously go through the clearance check, get you to your gate and then go back. And I recognize that that's a, that's a, going to be a, a nightmare from sort of a policy perspective, but it would A, allow us to make sure we get there and it would be cut down if they're busy on them and having to run around. Not ideal, but it could, it could certainly help. And I think more disability drop-off points. So to, to kind of match your concierge service if there was a spot where you could be dropped off at your terminal where you have a disability somebody could park bring you in um and then meet up with that concierge i know via rail had one for a while and it was quite yeah good. they did just go there and yeah, yeah. it was not great yeah yeah, they, yeah. Th 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 I, I don't. I, we've talked about union on the show before, so I don't want to take too many shots nope. at union. But that's uh, okay. But it's 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 struggling a little bit too. This conversation's yes. airline focused, but Union Station is yes. uh, going through some struggles of its own right now. Actually, I took the train coming out of Kitchener on Sunday morning to get back to Union Station, and uh, let's... I was on that train. Oh, were you really? Oh, yeah, I got oh. on in London. Okay, okay. Well, th might have been a different train. Might have been a different train. The London train uh, runs through Ingersoll, not uh, not Kitchener. Oh, okay. There, there is one that also goes through uh, Kitchener oh, well, and Guelph. Maybe, well, maybe we were on that train together. Yeah, wow. Oh, no, was no. wait was it was it delayed by forty minutes yes. when you? Yes. Ah, we were on the same train on Sunday. Oh okay. Well, here's here's what I'll say about about the Kitchener experience. I got there and the door to the station was locked, and they literally had one employee for the whole train station. That's awful. And and there was no indication of like where your car was going to pull up, like relative your train car was going to pull up relative to where you were on the platform. It was a guessing game. That said, Elizabeth, I've got really good train instincts. I've taken so many trains over the years. I almost have a sense of where things are and I nailed yeah, it on the too. pin. Car so, one. I know where car one is. <laughs> <laughs> blind guy blind guy instincts through and through. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you for this. Always great chatting with thank you. you thank you for your perspective. We'll talk to you next week with Marco Pasqua. You bet we will, Dave. Have a wonderful Wednesday. That's Elizabeth Moeller talking to me one-on-one. -on -one. Elizabeth will be back next Wednesday for a roundtable with Marco Pasqua. Coming up after the break, speaking of roundtables, there were uh, some serious service outages in terms of transit in the greater Toronto area and southern Ontario yesterday. 
Alex Smythe wants to explore the implications with myself and Ramya Amuthan. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You missed Ramya Amuthan on the show yesterday. I missed her too, but that's okay. The episode of Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Before you find out what's coming up today, I do want to look back to yesterday, though, and I need Ramya's help for that. Good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. Ramya, Francis Wong was talking about microdosing, but yes. you gave me no other notes beyond that. What exactly uh, are we <laughs> microdosing with Francis Wong? Well, we weren't microdosing anything yesterday, just to put that out there. Um, but we were talking about very informatively the the trend or what has become the trend that is microdosing, you know, mostly psychedelics, not just synthetic, natural um psychedelics as well yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. yeah yeah and talking about what exactly microdosing it is the history behind it you know the ebbs and flows of why people believe it works how people believe it works for brain health uh quote and so anyways she walked us through basically the information around microdosing because it is kind of like in the background a lot of more people are talking about it maybe not up front because of you know legal reasons for mm -hmm, north america mm -hmm. but it's there so yeah. to talk about it. Maybe, maybe a little less conversation on the cannabis front as that's now legal in Canada, yes, but yes. Uh, cybicillin, yeah. the active uh, component of mushrooms, is uh, yep. now being studied at the University of McGill, the University of Dalhousie, and several other institutions across the country mm -hmm. in regards to uh, mental health. And uh, yeah, interesting conversation there with uh, Francis Wong. So Ramya, thank you for uh, filling in a few more fibers for me there as it uh, worked <laughs> its way through. What's coming up on the show today? On today's show, we're talking about the AMI Plus um, app and web page that we have just launched, and we're going to talk about that with Greg David because we're all very excited about it. We want to know what it offers people. Also, during our finance chat, uh, Ryan Chin is shining a light on registered retirement savings plans. We've been talking more and more about these plans on a monthly basis, and today we're talking uh, specifically about group retirement because we didn't get to that mm. last month. Mm -hmm. And... Evolving economic conditions have had um, employees and employers reassessing compensation, career priorities, and recruiting strategies. So this is a conversation we're going to have with Michael French of Robert Half Canada. Very good. Sounds like a great show. Ramya, don't go too far, though, because Alex Smythe, you have a story here all about some transit trouble in southern Ontario yesterday. Yeah, that's right, Dave. The entire GO system network shut down uh, for several hours due to the fact that there was an issue with the CN Transit rail system. And John Kennedy, he has the details. Commuters across the greater Toronto area saw their afternoon rush hour travel thrown into chaos on Tuesday after a network-wide system failure at CN Rail halted all GO trains as well as all rail links to Toronto's main airport. Three and a half hours after the problems began, GO Transit reported that limited services would be resuming from downtown Toronto's Union Station. CN Rail released an afternoon statement saying it was experiencing an internet connectivity and electronic data interchange issue. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press, Toronto.
Now, since then, the service has uh, resumed and everything is back running normally. But I was caught up in this uh, yesterday trying to get my way into Toronto to cover an AMI event last night in the, the downtown area. And I had to very quickly find an alternative to get into the city. So what did you do? What did you do? Don't, I, don't, don't hold your cards to your chest. What did you do? <laughs> So basically, I, I walked into the, the GO station and um, I, I saw there was all the signs and there was the alerts that say find alternative uh, transportation. I pulled out my phone. I called Uber uh, because okay. there was really no other alternatives <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right at that point. Sometimes they offer buses, but, you know, I had to get in the city. I was on a time crunch. I was uh, kind of making sure I was going to be there when I needed to be there. So Uber was the most direct alternative uh, for me. And luckily, there was a Uber driver just waiting in the parking lot for someone to to, to call and uh, uh, um, uh, request a ride. So it, it turned out it was actually basically about the same time for me to get into the city that I had planned. So uh, that was my alternative that I called upon in, in this kind of time of crisis. But uh, I wanted to uh, open it up to the round table. I want to find for uh, both you, uh, Dave, and we'll start with you, Rami, on this. Like, what alternatives do you use when your main mode of transit is impacted or affected or there's delays or shutdowns? I mean, Uber, right? I had the same experience last week. TTC shut down. They wouldn't even tell us what the problem was. We were all, I walked into Bloor Young Station. I actually would have taken an Uber as plan A, but thought, oh my God, I'm literally 20 meters away from Bloor Young. I'm going to hop on the train, get up to Eglinton Station, go to Absolute Comedy. Um, but in that two minutes that it took me to get into the station and up to northbound level, all the trains, all directions had oh shut gosh. down Friday night. Um, the place was absolutely packed. And all you hear is like everybody putting in their two cents about what exactly could have happened. Oh, there was a fight downstairs. Oh, maybe there's something at track level. No trains were stopping. And it was just the perfect timing. I was like, I knew I should have just taken an Uber and bit the bullet. But anyway... Uh, I waited out because that's that's the thing with local transit, right? You never know. I know that this the story, original story, is um, a bigger picture thing. But with Toronto and TTC, I, there's always this waiting game of oh, are they going to do shuttles or is it going to come back? We were just waiting and waiting and waiting. And so 25 minutes later, my show's about to start. I go out and take an Uber, and I was like, I should have just done this the entire yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's never a time where you would take transit over an Uber because you think it's going to get you there faster. There's actually more oh, problems. There are times. There are times when I want to move east-west along Bloor Street using the east-west uh, TTC line. That subway working. is, if it's working, when it's working, I'm working <laughs> under the optimistic <laughs> idea that it's working. If you okay, need to yeah. get to the west end and you're at the corner of Pape and Danforth, uh, it is Pop way it. faster to take the TTC if yes. it's working. Exactly. And that's why when I was like, oh, it's way faster if I just get on four stops or whatever to Eglinton, super easy commute. Uh, then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah. Taking an Uber anyway. Yeah, you know, so you both identified it, right? And my answer is yeah. probably the same on this event. Inevitably, inevitably, I'm going to use a taxi or a ride hail service, depending on the length. I am a big proponent of two feet and a heartbeat. Like, I, like I, I, I like it when I can do a little bit of walking. Like, I have walked home from the corner of Bloor and Young uh, all the way to my apartment in North York. Like, it's it's about ten kilometers. It's a long walk, but it's like a nice way to it's a nice way to spend the afternoon. You get a little exercise. It's good for you, but I acknowledge the privilege that I have the two feet and heartbeat. I have the endurance and the capacity to go 10 kilometers on a fairly straightforward walk. 
There's a lot of people who don't have that opportunity or live out in the suburbs, especially in a situation like this with the GO trains. Mm -hmm. Alex, I don't mean to accuse Burlington of being a suburb. It's more of a bedroom community of Toronto rather than a suburb. I, I know you're, you're your own city, but like, let's not get too bogged down into details here. I would also tell you that Belleville and Barrie are bedroom communities of Toronto. But the point, oh, the point is, your only option in that scenario is essentially to take your destiny into your own hands. Because even yeah. if you waited for a shuttle bus, Alex, that was going to take forever, and it was going to be so unpleasant. Well, and the thing was, there were some trains that I heard that didn't even make it to different stations. That were They were in between stations and needed to get shuttles from the trains to the nearest station. So that was what was gonna be addressed first. And there was no, when I was in the GO station, there was no reference or uh, kind of information about potential shuttles. It was saying, find an alternative route. I had never heard that kind yeah. of message before. So I was <laughs> I was scared immediately. I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not waiting here. But that said too, Uber, it, for me, it was convenient and the cost was very reasonable. Like I was shocked how affordable it was. It was $66 to get from Burlington to uh, Bloor and uh, Spadina in Tor in the heart of Toronto. So like that is very reasonable, but there were people later on, especially around rush hour, the surge pricing, it was costing people like $400 yeah, yeah. to take an Uber if you could mm -hmm. get one during that rush hour time. So. It was a convenient uh, route for me to take, and it didn't cost me an arm and a leg. But for a lot of people, that there was a financial impact that they could have had to really consider a lot more and weigh that a lot more heavily when it was the rush hour time. It's like, you know, is this really even affordable? Can I afford to take an Uber at this point? Yeah, there's been a thread throughout the show today about the wavering and conflict that goes along with being green, being eco-friendly, and the real world that surrounds us. The Daily Poll today is all about what can be done to make bike infrastructure make you feel safer as the city of Montreal is grappling with expanding bike lane and bike lane infrastructure. Here's another conversation where trains, in theory, are a great green public transit alternative relative to buses but fundamentally buses can be more reliable they have their they have their their fallbacks as well but Ramya in sort of 30 seconds here an unfair amount of time it really speaks to that constant wavering that's going on between give me something that's efficient not just eco-friendly Yes, absolutely. We have too many people relying on transit and getting in and out of hubs like Toronto. Something like this happens yesterday. 5, 10, 15 minutes of an issue like this is uh, already problematic enough. You know, people are working with crunch time, but then you have hundreds or hundreds of thousands yeah, of people being yeah. affected by a system that goes down and you're you know what i mean? Like it's it's hours and uh commitments off your life that day. Yeah, that's that, see, that is the perfect way to land the plane or park the train. Well done, Ramya. Great perspective from you. Thanks, Ramya. Thanks, Alex. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't you worry. Things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. Be there, be square. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.